We've been waiting for a long time. Yes, we've been waiting for a long, long time. We've been waiting for a long time. But we ain't gonna wait no more. We're getting ready to rock and roll. We're going to one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Well, there's a reason everybody should be shaking in the house tonight. And you should grab your favorite lady and promise her you'll do it right. Tell Fat Jack to jump back and give you a shot of some booze. So you can party too. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is kind of a fun one. We're talking to Brian O'Neill. Brian was the front man for The Bus Boys. Do you guys remember The Bus Boys? If you do, it's probably because of their appearance in the classic movie 48 Hours. They played a couple of songs in there. This one right here, The Boys Are Back in Town. Kind of put them on the map. And when they made this movie, they became really good friends with uh, Eddie Murphy and then went on tour with Eddie Murphy so if you were listening to like Delirious or Comedian or those other things that Eddie did back in the day watched him on Saturday Night Live you know that these guys were they toured together they were kind of inseparable there for a while imagine what that must be like to have been one of the hottest bands in Hollywood at that time you're performing for those kinds of people the stars the glitz the glam the parties the drugs the other stuff you know Anyway, the Bus Boys put out three albums in the 80s. The first two are kind of more rock. The third one is more R&B. Keep in mind, these are a bunch of black guys. And so no one really knew what to do with a bunch of black guys that are playing traditional rock and roll. It's unfortunate, of course. Well, now Brian is back at it. The Bus Boys are working on a brand new album. They have a new single. They have a couple new singles. The biggest one, the most recent one, is called Love On My Mind. It's fantastic, and it's just in keeping with all the other good stuff that the Bus Boys have done. Anyway, I thought it would be really fun to hear some of those stories. What was it like? What did you see? Do you still keep in touch with Eddie Murphy? All that kind of stuff, and Brian was great at it. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I thought it might be kind of a fun one, and it was. Brian called me from his home in L.A. Okay, so yeah, first yeah, and for oh yeah. Where are you located? I'm in Denver. Ah. Yeah. I grew up in Salt Lake City, but I've lived in Denver for 15, 16, 17 years now, something like that. My uh, great friend and agent is from the Denver area. Or, oh, or, really? He went, he went to DU. Okay. And so, yeah, we, in fact, I was talking about Denver to an, another friend. I, I really like Denver. We got to play there a few times. Did you really? Oh, yeah. yeah we, we've, I wondered. We played. I, I listened to that Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere. Yeah. I, I, don't know, I don't know if I've been everywhere, but we've been a lot of places. I bet and, you have. And, and Denver is one of them. I've had tons of fun in Denver. Good. What's the plan? Are you going to, I mean, I am so excited that there is new music coming. And um, Love on My Mind is such a fantastic new single for you. 
Are you guys going to go back on tour? Is it going to be like the old days? Are you going to be playing more, mostly local to LA? What's the plan? <laughs> what, what, what I said, God laughs while men are making plans. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Our intentions are to play shows. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, would, I tell people that, and I tell the band, I said, we're really investing in being what I'd call weekend warriors. Mm-hmm. more than going on tours like we used to where you get on the bus and mm-hmm. drive everywhere and play some clubs, play some this, a variety of things. And that's largely because the concert scene has changed quite a bit. Yeah. You know, when I used to play, I can remember, and when I say used to play, when we were playing in the, in the early 80s, you, I would go through a town and you get to a club and it would be like a 300, 400 seater. And you'd see on the marquee, there'd be the Jay Giles band and there'd be Chuck Berry was coming in a couple of days. And then, uh, you know, you see the bus boys. So you'd have all of these types of live acts playing in a venue and people coming out to see it. And that is not quite the case around the country now. It's kind of divided into the large acts, very large acts, and then acts that are just beginning who are in that the local area. You don't have a lot of national mid-level acts, yeah. places that they play. They have some, but I know here in Los Angeles, some of the places that we played uh, in the early stages of it aren't really available for playing anymore. Now, the House of Blues was a later place, but it's it's not here anymore. I think they still have some House of Blues places. In fact, I know that they do. There's some House of Blues venues, and there are still some, but there aren't a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have to pick our spots. And at this stage of our lives and career, even though I can play at any time of day or night mm-hmm. in the band, we're primarily doing weekend shows. Okay. That's when the people who are both in our age group and larger crowds and things can come out to see. So your your Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday uh, stretches where you're going to do. We, the fact, thinking that people were going to come out, come see the bus boys on Wednesday night, it, those days may have by large gone by. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. Do you ever get invited to play on 80s shows like Lost 80s or... I mean, I go to a lot of those shows and they're so much fun. And granted, you would only be able, you would probably only come out and play three or four songs, but it would be so good to see you there. I think it's a nice paycheck. You get to reconnect with the fans that are caring mostly about you anyway. Do you get those kinds of invitations? We haven't, 
gotten enough of them. I'll put it that oh, way. Oh, I was going to say, Brian, come on. I'll, I'll do what I have to do to make it happen. <laughs> well, this is a groundswell thing. So okay. the busboys played for a lot of years. And then the confluence of events happened and we sort of stopped playing. And when that happens, you, you lose a certain amount of visceral connection with promoters, agents, and, and various people and things. But I would suspect with the singles release, because this is our second single, our first single, Civil Rights. Might be some truth in what I've said. Everything you say can and will be used against you. There's a thin line where you can find it. Separates the deeds of elected kings and common thieves. I'm what's left of your civil rights. It's been bloody, but still it's held up high. I'm what's left of your civil rights. What will not die? And this is our um, "Love on My Mind" is our second single. We're going to release another single. I think we're, we're we're doing "In My Heart," which is the title track from the LP. That's going to come out. And when after that comes out, then we'll do the, no, the next single and the whole album. And that will happen in the fall. Okay. I look at it as just a, as a building process. And what we're really trying to do is just build interest in the band, reintroduce the band, and have the, the, both the new material and the old material. Mm-hmm. Have your, your boys are back in your new shoes and mm-hmm. come back and uh, minimum wage and all those things sort of have a, a resurgence yeah. yeah and with that I, I suspect we'll be getting some opportunities to do more dates we'll get more invitations i hope so it's ripe it's so ti- it's so timely i'm curious going back to the very beginning so a couple of years ago on here i'm blanking on his last name it was mark he was the lead singer of jack mack and the and the heart attack do you remember them yeah of course yeah they, he was the voice of Marty McFly singing Johnny Be Good in Back to the Future. Anyway, I was imagining a similar trajectory for the both of you. I, I'm guessing, and I could be completely wrong, that the Bus Boys and Jack Mack are like the two hottest tickets in LA, specifically probably in Hollywood, in the late 70s, early 80s. You're playing every industry party. All the celebrities know to go to your shows. Everyone is there. It doesn't, for whatever reason, take off globally as big as it should, but there are you two are the hottest tickets happening. Am I sort of right about this? Okay. <laughs> well, even though now, comparatively, because of the music and then the time period, you would think of us and Jack Mack possibly in the, the, some of the same association. And we did do a few shows with them. Okay. And I have mutual friends and connections with those guys. And I've gone to see them play many times. 
uh, we didn't play a lot together. The Bus Boys were a standalone phenomenon. And we didn't, and it, we weren't a seventies band. We were actually, our debut performance was in 1980. Was it? Okay. I wasn't sure how far before 48 hours it started. Yeah, I, I know. When I, when I get people on social media that say, yeah, I came to see you in 1977. You guys were great. I go, uh, okay. <laughs> our debut performance was at the Whiskey Go-Go in 1980. And we played with, uh, it was the Bus Boys. Madness. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Yes. And we played here in Los Angeles to at that time, even before we got a record deal, really outstanding uh, reception, standing room only things. I remember one one time that I came up to the whiskey a go-go world famous whiskey a go-go and one night, this, this is not our, our debut performance, but this is maybe a, a year and a half. To, and I, I got there and people were lined up all the way up the street because it's on the strip. But then there's a, a, a street right next to it, the hill. People were all the way up the hill. And this was for sound check. This was like, I don't know, five o'clock, six o'clock in the evening. Show wasn't going to be until 10, nine or 10. It was there and I thought, oh wow, something must have happened. Maybe the fire marshal came and after boom, they can't open the doors or something's going on. And I, I remember I walked through the thing. And I, I asked a guy who's standing in line, I said, What's going on? What what happened? And he looked at me and says, You happened. We're all see you. So we were very, very popular. Yeah. The if I do say so myself in the in the early 80s of it through Los Angeles. And then that after the press picked up on it. That started to happen everywhere. Mm. And we, we, when we went on our first tour, we were also on two television shows. Uh, there was a show, the part, performance of which I really like. If anybody really wants to see what the Busboys did and sounded like, uh, this is a good point of reference. It's called Fridays. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, that's a that's a good show. I like that. That is uh, Fridays and then Midnight Special. And as it turns out, 
they came out and they aired on the same night. It wasn't met. I would like to say it was the complete brilliance of management, <laughs> but having been there and telling the truth, not quite. It was, it just happened that way. Right. So we, we, those shows came on television. We took off, went on tour and we toured clubs all across the country. Again, these are 200 to 400 seater type places. Some of, some of the places would be two shows. So you do one show and they'd have to turn the audience over and do another show. And those two were by and large sold out great shows and press from those the regional press in those areas as well. So that's, we started and we did all of that. Uh, that was from the, on the, the minimum wage album. So that was our first album. When we came back to Los Angeles and prepared and did the work for our second album, American Worker, we played a few shows here and there, but we mainly focused on making the record. And when the record was completed, we got a call from our agency that said that they needed to have a, a black rock and roll band in a movie. And it was going to be... Uh, my agent said it's going to be with Ed, Nick Nolte and Eddie Murray. <laughs> First baseman for the Orioles. <laughs> yes. I, I, I said, well, I, sounds good. Did you mean Eddie Murphy? Said, Murray Murphy, do you want to be in a movie? So, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do the movie. And when we first got to the set to do the movie, it was at a place, the, it was called Club Lingerie, but it used to be called the Sold Out Club. And I, it was the first place I'd ever played in Hollywood as a young man. When when the band was called Brian and Thanks before we became the band. So I knew that club inside and out. I knew Luch. I knew all the guys that worked there uh-huh. really well. And we came in and we set up. They didn't have a dressing room for us or anything. But I already knew the, the layout. I commandeered the middle area, uh, middle area of the place that... It was a storage area, but they didn't really know it was. I had my people come in the day before, sweep it up, clean it up. We had our own makeup, our own yeah, yeah you, right? Yeah. We play, and on the first day, they stop the thing about midway through in the afternoon and say, okay, everybody take a, a long lunch break. We, we've got to talk. And they told me, Brian, we got to talk to you. And they called my manager. I, I thought we were going to get fired. I said, well, at least they got to pay me for the day. And the, <laughs> And the music I made for the movie. So now they came back. They said, we're really apologetic and sorry that we didn't set you up in a better way and didn't have a trailer for you. We didn't know how great you guys were. Oh, nice. So what happened? We left that day and the next day and then the rest of that week, they really built the entire week around the bus boys. Mm. So it turn, it's it's like three quarters of the way through the movie, it turns into a music video featured us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, this was not surely by our preordained brilliance. We just came in and did what we do. Mm-hmm. And that movie really helped bring the band to national prominence. Yeah. I think the there's a I don't know, I don't know if it's a misperception. I think people think that. Eddie had something to do with bringing you on that movie. 
because your careers, especially in those early days, were so tied to each other with um, Delirious and the Comedian album and stuff like that, which I used to listen to religiously when I was little, probably way before I should have been. But anyway, uh, I learned getting ready to talk to you that it was actually, it, that's where you two met. There wasn't something where Eddie was, you know, bringing uh, the bus boys on. It was his first movie. It was your first movie. You guys were both just starting out, just happened to be at the same time. And that's where this friendship blossomed, right? That is correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, of course I knew who Eddie was and he knew who we were. We, we right. had already, first album had already come out. We'd done all these national tours and sometimes a lot of things you, you got to be there to, to feel what the uh-huh. site of the moment actually is. But I, he was, a, he was a really big hit on Saturday night live. Mm-hmm. I remember do uh, Mr. Rogers and a, a number of things. Yeah. I met Eddie on the set and it was his first movie and he was actually a replacement for Richard Pryor. Yeah. Richard Pryor was scheduled to do that movie. With Nick Nolte? Or was with it going to be? Okay, I didn't with, know if it was going to be completely different people. Yes, it it was. That was the plan. Uh-huh. And Richard had some diversions and some issues, and they ended up using Eddie. Uh-huh. And not all the executives were as high on Eddie from that from the, the beginning of it as he ended up warranting being. Uh-huh. Some people were going like, ah, I don't know. You know. Yeah. That happens with everything. But politics, music, life, things that people are like, especially if you're not the artist, if you, all the executives, they get together and they go, he's kind of, I don't know. Your face right there. People can't see it, but it just said it all. Everything you it said it all right there. And I think, I think some it may have been Katz and Jeffrey Katzenberg and some other people just went like, Listen, clowns, yeah. this is the goods, mm-hmm. and this is going to be great. And we did the movie, and I remember that we gave a party. Eddie gave a party. I said, let me host the party. I, this is my city. I live here. And he was staying at Dick Ebersol, who was mm-hmm. at that time the executive producer, I believe. He took over for Lauren, right? Saturday Night Live. Well, I don't know if he took over for Lauren, but Dick Ebersol was Mr. Saturday Night Live. I knew that. Yeah. And so we had a party at his house and we hosted the party and did things. And Eddie and I got to be very good friends. So that was the start of it. And we went on tour. We did some of our own shows and then we opened for Linda Ronstadt. Which is, oh, that was great. She's what a wonderful lady and a, a talented artist. What I hear. And just a great person. She was dating our then governor, Jerry Brown. And she and I had a few laughs and some some great conversations. Good. She was she was so nice. So we did that tour. Uh, and then we did some more shows and we did some things and then we did we opened for the Stray Cats. Right so on, perfect. They, they were the headliner. We were the the well, co-headliners, but we opened for them. And mm-hmm. I remember when we first came out to, to do their show. The, the first show, I came out sound check and I saw their setup. We'd done our sound check, boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they're the headliners. So they, they actually know the headliners sound check comes first. That's right. So we, I looked at their thing and I went, oh, man. I, it, just looking at their setup on stage, I said, this is not going to go well for us. We're, 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 
we're not they're gonna throw us off this tour because <laughs> here's a guy has got they got one microphone one yeah. little lamp for the for the lead singer and his guitar one small drum set and an upright bass mm-hmm. on this big old stage and i said <laughs> and i don't know man we did our star set and then I came out and, and I sat outside and we in the audience to listen to their show. Wow. I never yes. heard, never heard before since any three guys rock a house like that and make that much music. Yeah. It was just awesome. It was like, I was like, what's happening here? Yeah. The audience gone thinking. And, we did that tour with them. I don't know. I think we may have been on tour for about four weeks, maybe a little longer. And we'd done that tour and did a thing. And then our manager, who's uh, rest in peace, Mr. Michael Kleffner, who's a manager at that time. Roger Perry was our, our manager during the first record. And then Michael Kleffner, he helped set up our a show for us on Saturday Night Live. So when we did Saturday Night Live, now, I already knew Eddie from the movie. We were already boys. We were, we were good with each other. And I said, hey, man, why don't you come out and sing Boys Are Back With Us? He said, okay, I, I'll do that. I said, sing some of the backgrounds. He says, guy said, I said, but you got to dress like a busboy because otherwise, I don't know, what are you going to have on a dashiki or... <laughs> It's not going to work. So he said, okay. No, he said, no problem. So he came out and he, he did the song with us. And when we got through doing it, he, he and I were hanging out in his dressing room. And he says, man, I got a tour coming up. You guys should come open the tour for us. And I said, well, that's different. A, a musical act opening for the comedian. Because usually comedians have another comedian mm-hmm. open. And that was the Delirious tour. So we had... Three tours in a row, Linda Ronstadt, Stray Cats, and then the Eddie Murphy Delirious Tour in fairly short order. Yeah. And that's a large part of it. And while we were on tour together, when you spend nights and you see each other every night and their guys see your guys and Mm -hmm. you hang out, associate, you eat food together and travel, you get to know people pretty well. So Eddie and I became good friends and we're still really good friends oh good i've i've always wondered that i remember being a kid and hearing rumors that he was a member of the band because i didn't know i mean i was really little and i shouldn't have but i heard the comedian album before i heard before i saw 48 hours or anything like that so at the very beginning when he thanks the bus boys i'm like who in the world are the bus boys and i remember hearing rumors that he was an official member of the band Thankfully, it uh, and now I understand. Obviously, uh, as I got older, what the relationship there was. Do you? I, the thing you're telling me all this great stuff, Brian, and I'm just thinking, where were the record sales? Because it feels like to me that you guys had a lot of attention. Uh, uh, I guess nowadays they'd probably call it reach. You had good reach, you know, because you're on the right TV shows and in the right movies and stuff like that. But the albums, are they being promoted? Are you getting played on the radio like you should have? Because I wasn't getting that. Now, I grew up white in Salt Lake City, so maybe that's my problem. But I just wondered if it was all coming together or if it wasn't. 
Again, my answer to that would be yes. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> good. Yes, being all those things happening at once. The Bus Boys are a very unique band. And we were the, the first primarily black, we had that Hispanic drummer before being Hispanic was cool. Mm-hmm. Other Hispanic people say he, it was always cool. I know, but I mean, just in terms of uh, a public relations perspective. First black rock and roll band. Now you got to remember, there have been a lot of black artists mm-hmm. from Crud Up to uh, Arthur to Little Richard and Chuck Berry, mm-hmm. uh, Bo Diddley and the phenomenal Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. But these were solo acts, mm-hmm. not bands. Mm-hmm. The Bus Boys were not then and still are not now a radio act. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into the too much into it, but I will point out that radio is one of the most demographically separated forms of entertainment that we have mm-hmm. in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And always has been. And it's not a conspiracy. It's not a prejudice per se thing. That's not, that's not it. I'll say, well, well, who shot JFK? No, not it. It's just how things have happened and grown over the years. That does not change how the audiences attend shows. So even from the earliest days, uh, again, from, from Little Rich and Chuck Berry and all the things that happened in the formative years of the music, the 50s and the 60s, people came to shows and we all, nobody remembers who's listening to this, but even the shows were separated then, but the shows actually helped bring people together. Yeah, good point. Okay, so and that's from Motown to the Beatles to Chuck Berry to Elvis. But radio, ah, uh, radio has kept its separation. So we always did what my uh, a, a friend, who was our, I consider him a friend, person who was our steward and my mentor in, in many ways for the record industry was Clive Davis. And Clive says, you fall between chairs, which is a way of saying that you're good, people like you, you make good you're making good records and things, but the promotion of your music onto radio is difficult. I could see that. They probably don't know what to do with black acts that play rock and roll the way you do. They know how to market R&B acts and they know how to market rock acts, but not a black rock act. And in fact, that was something I wanted to ask you about because by the third album, Money Don't Make No Man, which... I love this album. I love all of them, but I really like this album, but it's an R&B album. It's not the bus boys. And I don't think that album was on Arista, which is Clive's label. I think by that point you might've been on another label. So were you being pressured to take on more of an R&B sound? Is that where your heart was at? And you, this is who we are now. We're different than we were before. What's the story there?
was my artistic decision. I am not. That's it. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a guy who's a lot influenced by outside entities and things. In the in the sense that, hey, play this, do this. You should do this. This would be. This is what would be good for you. Or mm-hmm. I don't do that. I was just feeling a little more R&B vibe, a little more groove. And wanting to put some rock elements with that. That was just what I was feeling at the time. That's the And you're correct. We had left Arista and we did that with Boss Records, which was a, a good independent label that was distributed by Capital. But I had a production deal with Arista and I've always had a production deal. So as with a production deal, what that basically means is you produce the music and then you hand it over to the label. Either they like it or they don't. I don't, I've never been an, an act that was, or the busboys were never signed to the label with the label coming and saying, okay, guys, I think mm-hmm. here's what you're all doing. Mm-hmm. I thought, no. So, okay. all, okay. all the choice were mine slash ours. And that's for better or for worse. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it all falls to you. <laughs> Good or bad? Wait, wait, wait. If it worked, we did it. If it didn't work. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> All my fault. Yeah. So I want to ask you about Get Never Giving Up because Eddie appears in the video. and Never, never Giving Up. Yes. Yes. So never. Is that what I said? I hope it is. Yeah. Never Giving Up. Eddie's in the video. Was that, that feels, especially at that time when he's, you know, still for, for most of the eighties and nineties, he's one of the hottest movie stars in the world. Did it, did it give you a leg up? Did it get the, the spotlight that it deserved? Because I, I, I don't remember seeing the video on MTV, but it seems like it should have been ready made for that. We were, and historians, if you are listening to a podcast one day and you want to check this out because legitimacy is important. I believe we were the first black artist on MTV. Now see, people don't remember how MTV was and how important it was or wasn't. And now we have separation of MTV one, two, three, and what they do. Mm -hmm. MTV was a big deal then. Uh, It was the start of visual revolution for acts. 
our, our song American Worker from Good our work. was the first video that was on MTV by a, a black artist. Before Michael Jackson and before Prince and before nah, nah, nah. so when we did Never Giving Up, which is one of my favorite Bus Boys tracks of all time. Heck yeah, same. Uh, it's, it's a it's a monster mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. This is how this how I feel artistically. But we we did the song and Eddie and I were hanging out a lot then because there's always there's the records. And what's going on in videos and things. And then there's what's actually happening in life. Mm-hmm. And during that period of time, Eddie and I were spending a lot of time together. And I had this song. I said, man, you should check the song out. And he heard it. He said, oh, I said, let's do it together. He said, okay. So he and his whole, I recorded a lot of the song at my house. It was before we had Pro Tools and things that actually made it easy to do professional recordings at your home. I had a little, I had a little setup at my house. Eddie and his guys came over and one day he came over and did the vocals. And the song was co-written by Danny Lamell and Nate Hughes, who were two members of the Stone City Band with Rick, Rick James. And there are cross affiliations there, but that's yeah. I heard the song when I first heard the song. It was, it was already in a pretty solid state, and I went like, "Ah, I want to do that." Mm-hmm. And that's how that got started. And Eddie came over. He sang on it. We had him come. We we did a show at the palace, and we were recording the video for it. And he came to the show and came on down and did it with us. And it's work I'm immensely proud of. Again, it did not have the amount of exposure or, or presence. Where are you going to play it? It's, it wasn't mm. an R&B song. It's still that, that Bus Boys flavor and that those guitars and all that stuff going on in there were different. That's not so. It's not a rock and roll thing. It's not not that. And then it's not classic R&B. It wasn't that? And we weren't an R&B band. Right. So it was another thing that possibly didn't get as much exposure as it could have gotten in terms of the marketplace. Right. Where, where, where do you play it? Where do, where do you, where do you place it? Yeah, I don't know. 
I guess that makes sense for radio. The video, I think you could play in prime time on MTV in those days and let people figure it out for themselves. But yeah, I understand what you mean. Okay. I got to ask one of my listeners, um, Wanda, and I had the same question, Stephen Shaw, we have Patreon supporters and I always tell them who I'm talking to and if they want to submit questions, they can. Mm -hmm. Stephen is a huge Huey Lewis in the news fan. And his question was around heart and soul. You've probably been asked this a million times in getting ready to talk to you. I I've always wondered what the story was there too. My understanding is that the song written by Chitty Chap was sort of being sent out to everybody and Exile, Huey, and the Busboys all kind of bid on it around the same time. Huey, I think, even tells a story about they're in, he's in the studio recording it, and you're in the next studio recording it at the same time. Does any of this uh, sound true to you? That's funny. That's, that's new information. Really? <laughs> I could send you the link. Yeah, he says it's the last song on hit their album. He's recording it. He goes down the hall to the bathroom. He walks by another studio, and you guys are in there recording the exact same song. things have happened <laughs> and i i already knew who uh, huey lewis and the news were and i liked that band and it was a song that was being sent around and it's it doesn't usually happen what happened with that song and thank you and what how we ended up doing it together doesn't usually happen so i'll give my my short version of it is that the song was out there Clive Davis and Tom Sturgis basically brought it to me. And I said, okay, well, let's try, let's try this out. Then somebody, somebody brought it to Hugh Lewis in the news as well. And normally what happens is there's what, what the executives call is we put a hold on that song and somehow that hold didn't, some, didn't somebody, hold. No, it didn't. <laughs> someone missed the memo. <laughs> <laughs> so we end up both have do, doing the song, and there you go. Yeah. When his becomes a huge hit, and yours is on the album, your album that came out the year before, are you feeling any kind of jealousy, or do you care one way or the other? No, I don't. Again. I, I've been a very fortunate and blessed man and I've had the opportunity and the possibly the the courage and the stubbornness to just pursue what it is I do. Mm-hmm. So I don't measure myself relative to other people. I'm aware of what other people are doing, mm-hmm. 
But I don't ever go, I, go, oh, I wish I was Madonna. I should mm-hmm. be like, not living there. Yeah. Good. You know, I, I came up at a time where I, I tell people, in, in many ways, I'm a Beatles kid. Even though they, I was really, really little when they were very, very popular. Well, no, when they started their careers. But I remember how crazy it was. And I always enjoyed their music. All your music doesn't all sound the same, unless you wanted to. And you have the the main question that was asked in the '60s and in, in parts of the '70s. Somebody say, "Yeah, he's they, they've got a really good band, or they're a really good singer, or they play saxophone well, or whatever, whatever the thing is that they do." And you say. The question was, what do they have to say? And that subconsciously worked as a backdrop to everything I've done. And you have to do what you believe in, roll the dice and and see what happens. So it's interesting you say this, Brian, because I had a question about that specifically. As you know, so many of your songs relate to work, whether it's minimum wage, American workers, working hard, achieving the dream, whatever it is. And I've always wondered if those, if what came, if, if it's a coincidence that the band is called the bus boys and they're the working class, they're a bunch of mater D's and these songs fit with that theme or uh, image, or if you really, if everyone believes in hard work, but you got, you do for like more than others for some reason. And I want to, I know I'm talking a lot, but I have a qu- another question for you from one of our Patreon supporters. Mm. Kevin Wench wants to know, and I think this was a really interesting thing to say. Um, he always thought that American workers specifically was a representative song of the early Reagan times and the nation rallying back from the seventies and inflation and Iran. And um, it just felt like people rallying together for the common good. This was prior to when greed is good becomes kind of more the, the bigger statement that takes over for the rest of the eighties. And he just wondered if how you guys feel about work, especially as African-Americans and maybe even compared to today with like the great walking out where everyone's sort of leaving their jobs. I know that's a lot, but do you have thoughts on this? Too many for this podcast or to be anybody else. I tell you. I come from family background that values work, discipline, and accomplishment. And I'm a huge patriot. I may even be more of a patriot than my parents were. It's not a contest, but the American ideal, the dream of what America is and what it was founded on in terms of both its constitution, its bylaws that came after it, the concept that all men are created equal. And everybody should have an opportunity to do what they do. And you should get to work and get to doing it. No other nation ever has had that as their founding principle. Okay, Never. And I was always both a believer and a challenger of that concept in the sense that it's not that I think that everything is or should be necessarily particularly equal there's no everything and everybody's equal i don't, I don't know how that works and, and it, it doesn't we're not equal people we're not but everyone should have an opportunity to succeed and my parents who were both educators i think helped instill that in me and with, with my brother kevin so 
yes, there are inequalities, but what you need to do is get to work, man. Just like, you, you, okay, so you see that's what's what's on the program. It's up to you to do your best within the context of what you have the opportunities to do. So that was the founding theme for the name of the band. Got it. And has and still is a part of what runs through the songwriting and the thought processes and the things that I do in my career. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a really inspiring thing to say. One thing we try to cover very sensitively on here is the business side of things. Now, mm. Boys Are Back in Town did not appear on any album until 2005. Huge song. It's affiliated with movies. I believe you wrote that song. Maybe you had co-writers, but it's... So that song's in 48 Hours, which is a movie that continues to live on. Cleaning Up the Town is in Ghostbusters, and it's on that soundtrack, but also not on a on a Busboys album. That's a movie that's playing somewhere 24-7 all the time. I'm guessing, and if this is too insensitive, you tell me, I'm guessing there's some decent mailbox money being made from just those two songs appearing in those two movies. All right, so if we're asking about the mailbox money, the thing there, it's, it's been a good thing. And yes, there are, there is good money from it now, not millions of dollars per se and things are, or maybe it's millions by now. I don't know how many thousands it takes to add up to, you know, what we, but again, it didn't stop the band from finding an audience that appreciated our work or nor did it change or stop the approach that people have to radio. And there's also a perception thing, even within your own camp. I think our management and our situation placed us into 48 hours. That wasn't a record company thing. Mm. And there's always a, an association between the band, the artist, and your label. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a production deal, so we were, we were responsible for producing music and records and things and then handing over the label. The label could say, we don't like it. And here are some of our thoughts, thing, and, and we, but it wasn't up to them. It's up to us. So the movie and our appearance in it, as I described to you earlier, was basically a busboy's thing. Still doesn't mean that it goes to radio in a special way. And at the time, I don't think our record label really understood the potential of what we were doing and how that worked. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, it's, and it's not a bad on them. I don't blame anybody. Had we not had a record deal and had not had we not already recorded the song New Shoes, which was on American Worker, Joel Silver and um, the other powers that be would not have noticed it relevant to what could work in that movie. So...
they weren't working against our success. They just didn't realize it. Yeah. They just didn't recognize it being the level of the, the potential for its success. But here's the other thing, though. We capitalized on the audience of it. They didn't hear it possibly as a record. They just thought, boys are back. That didn't make sense possibly in some of the, the, the corridors in terms of how to promote a record. And I don't think it, again, one thing we know about corporations, they and people in business, they never say no to money. Very true. Or I would, if, if, and I, if, if maybe that's not never, okay, I'll, that's too huge. They seldom say no to money. And had there been a perception that the song and the single and the way it was done could have been a big hit, I think there'd have been a little more focus. What about Ghostbusters then? How did that happen? Ghostbusters was a, a, another thing that was done by the, the next manager, Kevin Benson. Kevin Benson was working with a, a group of people, and he knew or he was connected with Ivan Reitman and Joe Magic. Ivan Reitman was the director and, and helped create Ghostbusters, and Joe Magic was a producer. And he pitched them some songs, and he was representing us at the time, and they liked Clean Up the Town. They just went like, my, that was a song that was originally written by my brother, Kevin, and that we'd done while we were on tour. I remember we were in Orange, New Jersey. And I remember we played basketball with Cool in the Gang. Anyway. Oh, nice. Wow. Small, small tidbits. Mm-hmm. And we had this song, and it was Kevin's song, Clean Up the Town. And it got pitched to Ivan. Ivan liked it as a Joe and thinks it's, ah, well, this is really good. Why don't we bring Brian in and talk about it? And they talked to me and they said, we like the song. Can you change the lyrics? And I said, yeah, I can do that. Mm-hmm. So I changed some of the lyrics and then Kevin added some more things to them. Specters, a few other things. Mm-hmm. Now, little known fact, and it's, I don't know, even though he and I are good friends, Ray, Ray Parker and I are good friends, I don't, I told him this and he didn't know and it's all apocryphal. But that song was not the song they needed to go into the movie for the main soundtrack. 
And what they have been using on the temp track was another Huey Lewis song. Uh-huh. That has already been settled in court. And I won't go into it much. I know that and, story. But it wasn't a kind of song that we would do. I was doing something I would do. And so, but I told them at the meeting, I said, yeah, I said, you know, they were playing me a song that they already had in there. I said, you might want to reach out to Ray Parker. Because mm-hmm. Ray Parker was a session before he became a hit with radio. And when I said that was the name of his band, mm-hmm. before Ray Parker became a an artist who was almost like the world's most handsome guy, R&B artist guy thing, he had been a first call guitarist. For, He's for been session. on here, by the way. We talked about this exact thing. He's incredible. In fact, in a lot of ways, I'm sad that most people just think of him and Ghostbusters, because that's just one piece of an of a very rich career that encapsulates so much more than one song. That's correct. He's a very musical guy, and and well, we weren't best of we're better friends now than we were then. But I knew what Ray could do, and if if you're calling somebody to say, "Here, give me a song that encapsulates this same vibe," not rip it off. Because that's that's not where you want to go. You want to say, what, what? Give me something in in this same area. Mm-hmm. I told him. I said, Ray Parker is a good person to check in with. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I said it, and I was with Ivan and Joe and Kevin Benson and was it Erwin Mazer? We were in the office over at what was then CBS, turned into one words. Anyway, I was sitting there when I said it. I remember there was dead silence. And in executive meetings, if whenever you hear, that means they probably either like that or don't like it, but nobody wants to say anything. Yeah, so, everybody's thinking about it. Yeah, well, like it must have been a good idea because then that think they reached out to Gary Lamel, who was already there, that had a relationship with with Ray Parker, and that's how the song came to be. Mm. I mean, Ray did all the writing, all the stuff. But, yeah. It's interesting when you listen to cleaning up the town, first and foremost, it set, well, the bus boys in general sound like something that would have inspired Dan Aykroyd to have started the blues brothers in the first place. And so I could imagine, especially with a Saturday night live connection, him and bill being fans of yours. And I wonder, maybe I'm misremembering was Eddie being considered for the Eddie for the Ernie Hudson part at one time? So maybe there were connections there, but it sounds like there weren't. But that's what I've always wondered was going on with how you guys got selected to be on there. It's just so many connections that make sense to me. But well, we're we're all connected. Yeah. Everybody who's listening to this and who will listen to it in the future, possibly after I'm gone, we're all connected. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we have to understand a, a little more or less but if you in in your industry in your country in your industry in your town you're all connected everybody's knows the same some of the same things and are doing some of the same thing so there's an affiliation yeah and if i don't think eddie was being considered for the ernie hudson role or oh, that maybe i misremembered wait wait no 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 i don't oh. know I, I didn't make any of the movies. I don't know anything. (laughs) Now that might, might've been on their wish list, but Eddie was on his way to becoming and being 
one of the biggest stars in the history of the industry. And so that wasn't a part I don't think he was getting ready to do at that time. Now, me, I'm not in charge of Eddie's business or Ghostbusters or anybody else, but I don't think so. But it was an opportunity and a lot of people, there's a lot of creativity going on, a lot of ideas and vibes and lunches and things going on. And lunches. Yeah. Which aren't as cool anymore. I think first it was coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> and then after COVID, I don't know what we're doing now. I don't so, either. Zoom yeah. meetings like this. Yes. Virtual lunches. Let me ask you this, Brian. I So something I've always been curious about, and we try, again, we try to touch on this sensitively on here. Hmm. When the bus boys, I don't, I don't know enough about the bus boys to know if after Money Don't Make No Man, which I believe was 88. Yes. Have you been, did you guys stop from, and from then until the last few years? And if they, if you, or were you still gigging around LA? What have you been doing? How does Brian O'Neill make a living when the bus boys aren't happening or have they always been happening and we just didn't know it? Mm. You asked, you asked the, <laughs> the very, um, somebody <laughs> questions. First of all, artistic living is not easy on a financial level. No, it's not. It, you, you really have to be steeled in your will to do what it is that you're going to do. And you got to take the arrows, man. It's not, it's not an easy piece of business. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, after Money Don't Make No Man and some things, we were not as popular as we'd been, but that it was starting to happen even before Money Don't Make No Man. It's just the way things go. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of bands from 1980 and then you get into 1985, 86 weren't as popular as they were. Things in the pop industry kind of go up and down. Yeah. So I continued to work and make music. I had a band called Black Bart and Black the Black Bart project lasted for a few years that was uh, at the end of the 80s going to the 90s and it was kind of a hard rock hendrix oriented piece of business wow so anybody that that has a black bart cd hold on to it it may be a a good listen and and be something else later Uh, so i did that and we played and we did some things and We started a label to distribute the Black Bart CD. And it was in the very beginning of of having your own people having smaller labels that were distributed and and were going to be sold through Apple and digital distribution points. So my management then helped make that deal. And so we had the Black Bart project and it went through there. And then after that, it done about two or three years. I, I said, you know, I, I was having a feeling I wanted to do the bus boys again. Mm-hmm. And so I, the fact that the boys are back had never been released. This big iconic record, this mm-hmm. statement, musical statement, artistic statement in our career mm-hmm. had not seen any exposure. I said, well, I'm going to start there. Let's, let's do that record because it needs to have been done. I don't want to leave the planet and go like, 
yeah, wasn't that in a movie? And it was real special. <laughs> right. So, I started there and I wrote a bunch of songs for that record. And I was feeling a, a busboy thing and sort of been built going forward from that. I had a label then. So now I could release and distribute on my own. And we started doing a few shows here and there and they were make a ton of money, but they were, they were okay. We had some situations and we, we did a lot of things. So the period between the release of the boys are back CD, which I think it came out in 2000, 2001. Okay. Something like that. The period between then and now has been just making music, taking care of my family and building up my skills, which are always important to me. Yeah. On the boys are back in town album. Uh, it there's, it's a, it's not a best of, but it's, there's some new stuff. There's some reimaginings. One of the reimaginings is the money. Don't make no man song, which was one of my favorite songs on the first album or on the, the actual album in 88. Mm-hmm. But this version almost sounds country. Walking down the streets of the city, I'm feeling so good. I think I own this town. I know I don't have much money tonight. I can't let a little thing like that bring me down. Times are hard for the and I work so hard And I'm doing everything I can I know tonight that I'm not part of your plans But I'd love to be The one to show you Money don't make no man no Have mercy Don't let this poor boy go If they are almost nothing alike, what was the thinking of re-recording that song in that way? A couple of things. Reimagining songs that are in your own repertoire is a thing I, I at some points, I'd like to do more of a thing, but it's it's a tried and true thing that I've learned from other artists. You know, I listen to a lot of jazz things, so people are continually re-recording. The idea that in pop records, you do one record, and that's your record. If you do uh, Fire and Rain, that's Fire and Rain. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's a hit, then mm-hmm. there you go. Whereas if you're Thelonious Monk and you do Well, I Need, that's been recorded umpteen times by him and played different ways, solo recording, different things. And I just thought that Money Don't Make No Man, which is a favorite song, my best buddy, Mr. David Bellman, I thought a a more gentle, laid back vibe to it, as opposed to the the first one was sort of like, that's my interpretation, Mm -hmm. had a 80s 
bounce to it and the thing. That whole album reminds me of something that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis might have done around that time. Kind of that Minneapolis funk pop sound. Anyway, continue. No, which I know guys and I almost got a chance to work with him. Really? Yeah. But I also have listened to interviews about Morris Day and Jimmy and Terry talking about Prince trying to explain to him that they needed to expand their sound. He needed to expand his sound, kind of like the bus boys. Mm-hmm. Now, not, not my, not my words, theirs. <laughs> serious, serious F- F- FM. Wow. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Again, all things are related and things are all happening in the same space and time. Yeah, you can tell. Uh, but I just thought it would be interesting and, and a good piece of business to present it in a different way. I just felt yeah. that that song had that potential. Fascinating. Yeah, it's so different. It's uh, it's a completely different vibe, um, but it shows the diversity and the breadth of what you and the Busboys can do. Okay, I... I got to hear, I feel like I'm missing an opportunity here. Not to, if you guys were one of the hottest bands in Hollywood for a few years, tell me a story. Tell me, you can make it a, an appropriate story or an inappropriate story. Tell me a, tell me some stories about playing in Hollywood, people you've seen, people you've hung out with, things you've done. Tell me about it. I'm not, I'm not going to bug you about what Eddie Murphy says about ladies on the road. I'll, I will, we'll assume that's Eddie's, uh, that's Eddie being Eddie, but tell me a story about those days. Again, you don't have time of the room. I believe it. You got to write a book, Brian. You got to get all this out there somewhere. Well, needless to say, there's been a lot of sex, love and rock and roll mm-hmm. that has transpired over the time. And an interesting story. I don't, well, it, uh, could, it doesn't have to be about any of those things. Did you ever meet a hero? Did you ever play a party and someone was there and someone got in a fight or someone was, you know, drunk or you had a good laugh or you, I don't know, shot dice or whatever it might, whatever, you know, I don't know. Had a good uh, meal, had a, whatever it might be. Just tell us a fun story. Okay. I'll give you a couple of vignettes. Okay. So, my hero, and he still is a, a, a an iconic figure in my life, just in terms of his work. And we said with Stevie Wonder, and I remember I met Stevie Wonder first in the seventies at a clothing store on Sunset Boulevard. And then when we were getting ready to do when the, the Bus Boys had no record deal, we were just trying to get ourselves together, trying to to make things happen. I started rehearsing at a place that he rehearsed at, which was called Modern Rehearsals, Modern, modern Recording, whatever. And it was um, in Hollywood. I live in the South Bay part of Los Angeles, which so it was a hall to go up there and, and, and rehearse, but I thought it was good. So by us rehearsing where he rehearsed, I got to hang out a little bit and do a thing with him. And we gave a showcase to have a showcase, I guess people all know what showcases are now, but mm-hmm. the, we're trying to have some people in the press and some some record executives and people, no record deal yet. Still, the name of the band is still Brian and Things. I call and I ask, I had a, a number for him. I called Steve and says, hey man, will you come to our showcase? 
all you have to do is come a few minutes early to your rehearsal or at your regular rehearsal time to stop in. And I can tell people that you're going to be here and it'll help me get some people there to come see us. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, no. I said, really? I said, all you got to do is that's for so good. No. Now, Bruce Springsteen had just been in town a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, and he jumped on stage with the knack. So oh, my yeah, the knack. Right. Yeah. And he jumped on stage with them at the Troubadour. And that got a nice, real good buzz for them. And then it got him a deep thing happened, a thing. And I said, yeah, you know, that thing. So I said to Stevie, because we all knew about this. And I said, well, it's too bad that we, that we'll, mm-hmm. we don't know how to stick together enough to help one another to move things forward. That's me talking to Stevie Wonder. <laughs> there was a dead silence. <laughs> I bet. Oh, wow. <laughs> Calling out your hero like that. Wow. Uh, he said to me that after all the silences, what time? Oh, yeah. There you go. And he ended, up, he ended up coming to that showcase, and that showcase did help propel us and moved us forward. So I'm always thankful. So there's a story for you. Yeah, there you go. In, in, the, in the very beginning, I'll tell you another quick story. Yeah. When, I was doing Black Bart, which was, again, a hard rock thing. We used to hang out at this um, club. And during that time, everybody was coming to this club. Billy Idol, Stephen Pierce would be there. Everybody. There's no all your 80s rock people. And then Tom Jones was there. And so this was a hangout spot for about three months that was just an unparalleled nexus of musicians who were in the 80s 90s vibe of things i just i got a chance to spend some time I'm, i already knew brian Setzer and guys in those things and various people and but a lot of times with guns and roses and some of the guys in guns and roses and slash and axel slash and i got to be good buddies and i remember they had a little tiny room that was between the two main stages. And I was waiting for somebody to bring me some Cavassier. Mm-hmm. And no one brought it. And there was a girl. His drink came in. He had two of them. He said, I said, she said, what do you want? I said, Cavassier. He says, yeah. He said, skip that. Here, try this. And it was some Jack Daniels. And the rest is history. <laughs> 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 oh there you go that's how i was introduced to seven by the one and only mr slash who's one of my favorite guitar players and such a great guy and um what an yeah yeah so there, there's all that i love I it I, I i could go into it more but we maybe we yeah I believe it. I believe you've seen it all and experienced it all. You know, Hollywood and LA and that scene better than most. And uh, it would be fascinating to pick your brain. Brian, I have always, always wondered what the bus boys story is. I grew up on those movies. I grew up on that music and I've always just thought, what must it be like 
for a black man, a band of black guys playing that kind of music at that time in that location. What is their story? What is the history there? So thank you for talking with me. I have wanted to do this for years. John, I, I appreciate you. And I would encourage listeners to, you know, I always think that the bus boys is a movement as much as it is a band. So go back, check it all out. Um, our new single, Love on My Mind, has just been released. But by the time people hear and receive this, this that they won't be just now having been released. And I want to remind people, we have a social media contest for kids, encouraging them to do a little video just with their phone, what love means to them versus the track. We're giving some money in support of their classrooms and their teachers. That's great. Um, and you can figure that all out on our website or there's information on Twitter. There's Excellent. information on Facebook. But more importantly, I appreciate your curiosity. Absolutely. Speaking and of which, you're talking about these videos, the video for Love on My Mind, it feels like it's almost a love letter for you and your wife. Half the video is pictures of you two together. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. And it is an homage and a, tr a tribute to such a wonderful, lovely lady, the mother of my twin boys who are just celebrated their 26th birthday. And Kim passed. Her name was Kim. Uh, oh, Kim she's gone? Oh, I didn't Kim realize that. 2012. Sorry. Yeah, I know. And people don't need to know that. That's not the important thing about it. Mm -hmm. she, we wouldn't want it to be about, or she wouldn't want it to be about, I don't think. I'm mm -hmm. speaking for her again, or, or others. I'm always cautious when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. But it is a wonderful memory to and, uh, and about her. And quite honestly, I didn't write the song necessarily about that moment, even though that's what happened. We were trying to figure out who the love interest should be for the song. And an intrepid member of, of my current management team, who shall re remain nameless, Pam, thought, <laughs> <laughs> she said, why, why don't you do, why don't you make a camp? Yeah. And I went, oh. So not every artistic idea is, is mm -hmm. <laughs> the originating in our own brilliance. I went, okay, great. And, and um, the director, Robert Bakash, integrated her into it really wonderfully. And it's a, it's a great piece of business. It is. I had no idea Kim wasn't with us anymore. And that adds a layer of depth to an already great song that I didn't even know about. So it's even more, uh, there's even more to love and appreciate now. Thank you, Brian, for talking with me. You're a legend as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Wow. Okay, well, John, thank you very much, man. I appreciate you taking the time to know our work and to ask the questions. And I just encourage people, If I, my, my, my last thing, art is very important. Art, thought, expression, and then the commitment to having that expression see the light of day, the best light of day that you can make it have. And it's important. We're all only on the planet a hundred years, more or less. Maybe somewhere in Mars, somebody was listening to this going like, ah, this dude's talking about a hundred years. 
we all we all live to 400. I don't know. But I know right now, it's 100 years more or less. And what is important is that you understand that your layer of being in your 100 years helps make the whole of it. I call it your soul print. There you go. I like that. So you want to make, make, make your soul print count. And that, that, that's just an everyday piece of business and requires great courage, though, mm-hmm. and great feeling because there are a lot of distractions. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I'm going to think of a soul print from now on. I love it. All right. There you have it. Brian O'Neill. I thought that was fun. We just don't get to hear perspectives like that often enough. I loved it. I wanted to close it out with another Busboys song. This is something strange. This is off that third album, Money Don't Make No Man, which is the R&B album. I really like that one. I like all of them. So check it out. If you're new to the Busboys or you haven't thought about them for a while, or all you really know is like the Ghostbusters song or the 48 Hours stuff, dig a little deeper. There's a lot of fun stuff in there. By the way, Brian wanted me to make sure I mentioned to everybody that the club that uh, Black Bart performed in was called Spice. He couldn't think of it right that moment, but he wanted to let everyone know. I guess it's a really hot L.A. spot, or it was. Anyway, next week's guest, this is it's going to be a twofer. The first part, the first interview is with an absolute rock and roll legend. One of the greatest voices in rock history, front person for one of the greatest bands in rock history, uh, it's Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. That's what's up. The second half of the interview is with a Grammy-winning producer, sideman, session guy. Uh, and so we're going to put them together. That's what's coming up next week. It's a lot of fun. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Folks, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.